And as you're sitting down, do me a favor, open up the Bible you brought this morning or the Bible that's there in the pew to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. And I, don't, I, I say this every once in a while, and it's been a little bit, but I want to just continue to remind you if you're a guest here at Grace or maybe haven't been here in a while, that Bible in the pew, if you don't have a Bible or if you have someone in your life who needs a Bible, is yours to keep. So please take that as our gift today. Similar to the Gideons, we want to get the Word of God in as many people's hands as we possibly can. So consider that a gift if you don't have a Bible of your own or you have someone who needs one. As you're opening up to Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'm, I'm once again going to state a premise that I think we can all agree on, and that is this. Anyone who professes we live by grace alone believes the following. They believe that God is the giver of every perfect gift and that everything we have is because of God's generosity in our lives. If we believe that we live by grace alone, that's what under, supports that belief. And as we celebrate Reformation Sunday next week, that's part of what that's about is declaring grace alone. God is the giver of every perfect gift and everything we have is because of God's generosity in our lives. We can all agree on that. However, the implication of such grace, the practice of living generously, which has been the focus of our sermon series, eludes many of us. Generosity does not come instinctively for us. Left to our own devices, we are inclined to act in the opposite direction. Our tendency is to accumulate rather than to give. We are, in fact, even taught to hoard to be possessive about our resources. In fact, think about it. We admire, we admire those who amass assets and wealth. We, we dream about what life would be like, what we could do if we only had more. And if we're really honest, there's a certain amount of fear associated with being generous, a certain amount of fear. I mean, once we give away what we have, we worry we cannot get it back. Generous practices often feel like a risk to us because when we don't know what life's going to be like just, say, the next six months, caution and conventional wisdom urge us to hold on to things. In case of an emergency, rather than to give something away, we potentially are going to need down the road. As you have those Bibles open this morning, as we press ahead in our reflection on Jesus' magnum opus, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses once again these kind of fears and thoughts. Jesus, if you will, is about to offer us some investment advice. Those Bibles are open. We're going to start in verse 19 in chapter 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Matthew writes, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, in this teaching, moves from detailing kingdom practices. That's where we left off last week. Jesus giving us detailed kingdom practices, if you will, the how to be generous, and moves now to describing where to focus 
where to aim the grace we have been given. And as you see, if you have those Bibles open, and I encourage you to keep them open, Jesus in this brief teaching, this part of his sermon, offers us a series of two, a series of contrasts. We have two treasures, we have two eyes, and we have two masters. Now, to appreciate the fullness of what's going on here, I, I want to give you uh, an image. And my best way to give you a way of thinking about this is to reference a movie that I assume most of you have probably seen, but probably with a child, and it's a movie called Shrek. If you've seen Shrek, Shrek's about an ogre. And there's a great scene in that mo movie where Shrek the ogre, who wants to be left all alone, is constantly accompanied by a donkey named Donkey. And they get into a conversation where Donkey basically wants to know what, what are ogres all about? How do you be, why are you an ogre? And there's this great line, which I, I'm going to stimulate if you've seen this, your remembrance of this, where Shrek basically says, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Ogres, Shrek says, have layers. And then Donkey proceeds to beat the heck out of that, <laughs> that analogy. But that idea of layers, I think it's a really helpful way to, to enter into what Jesus is teaching here. Oftentimes we find this in Jesus' teaching, but specifically in this passage, there are layers to what Jesus is trying to teach us here. And so I want you to think about that as we unfold these small amount of verses. And the first layer begins with Jesus declaring, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and I think it's so significant, again, this idea of layers, because just that verse is very famous to us. Many of us have heard that verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's just the point. This verse has often become teaching a verse that gets pigeonholed when we're just talking about material resources and wealth. This is the verse, these are the verses that get pulled out during a stewardship campaign. These are the verses that get pulled out when the pastor's going to talk about tithing. And I'm not suggesting that they're not relevant, but what I'm trying to say is Jesus is going much deeper than that here. He's talking specifically, his word, about treasure. And that means we have to step back as, as that's the word that Jesus chooses to start out treasure, to ask ourselves, what is treasure? How do we define that word? And here's what I want to offer to you. Treasure is whatever we value above everything else. Treasure is whatever we value above everything else. And that means it's not necessarily money. Could be money, but it could easily be anything we value. It could be our house. It could be our car. It could be our clothes. It could be our allegiance to a sports team. It could be a particular skill or talent we possess. It could be a relationship we cherish. A treasure is anything we value above everything else. And here's the thing about treasure. What we treasure may have no value in and of itself or at, not, at least not as much value to others. That's the rub. But for us, whatever it is, whatever it is, its value is directly linked with our spirit, with our will, with our dignity. And that's why we hold it tightly. That's why we keep whatever it is that's why we will protect and defend whatever it is because, as we say, we treasure it. Treasure being both a noun and a verb. We treasure it. With that in mind, if you're looking at those Bibles, Jesus comes right out with a pretty startling blanket statement. As he declares, nothing on earth is worth treasuring. Nothing on earth is worth treasuring. Now, before you freak out, 
It's not that a home, a car, a benefits package, a special skill that we have, an intimate relationship, any of these things are bad. It's not that they're bad. All of the stuff, all of the resources we have in this life, whether they're material or relational, are non-moral. What that means is there's no inherent evil or inherent good in what we possess. The questions of right and wrong have to do with how we handle the resources we have been given. Again, before we overreact, before I lose you here, keep in mind what Jesus says in light of the definition of what a treasure is. Treasure is whatever we value above everything else. What Jesus is stating is nothing on this earth can be valued greater, can be valued above what we are given from heaven. If grace is what saves us, and we keep coming in this series back to that foundational statement for us, if we believe that grace saves us, and we all, if we're here, believe that, if grace saves us, then nothing is more valuable than grace in our lives. It stands to reason. If our relationship with God is our lifeline, and again, that's why we're here, because our relationship with God is our lifeline, then no other relationship is more valuable than our relationship with our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. But it's almost as if Jesus knows we're still gonna resist this. We're still gonna resist the obvious. And so as you see there, he goes on to contrast earthly and heavenly treasures. And, he, and in this contrast, he's sort of taking on the fundamental premise of what makes a treasure a treasure. If what we treasure is supposed to be about giving us security and assurance, Jesus reveals treasuring the wrong things will only end up not giving us security and assurance, but filling us with anxiety and regret. Treasuring things on earth, Jesus says, isn't too smart because treasures on earth are susceptible to decline. All of our earthly possessions, again, whether they are material or relational, are depreciating assets that can't be safe and secure. Each and every one of them will leave us insecure because of the corruption they're exposed to, they're subject to. Diminishment, as Jesus describes it, from moths. Some translations have vermin, some have rust. From moth, vermin, rust, and from thieves. Think about what that represents. Moths represent the impact of nature, the elements that can impact not even just our material resources, but even our relationships. The people you're in relationship can get sick. They're getting older. They're, they're, we're all decaying as much as we don't like to face it. When Jesus talks about rust and vermin, it's the impact of time. If nothing else, as time passes, things wear down. And then as Jesus talks about thieves, he's talking about the impact of our human nature, the impact of humanity, that things are always at risk because we have this tendency to take from each other. Now, I really want you to hear something, and I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to repeat this a couple of times because I feel like if you miss this, you'll miss everything. Jesus is not here removing our desire for treasure. He's, he's not removing our desire to treasure something. I, I actually think we could argue that's been hardwired into us by our creator. We, we, we want to treasure something. What Jesus is doing is not removing that desire. He's redirecting it. He's elevating our sense of value. He's reframing our focus from what we seek to accumulate materially to what we can store up spiritually. Store up for yourselves, Jesus says, treasures in heaven. He encourages us because what we gain for the kingdom, what glorifies God is untouchable. 
in contrast to earthly treasures. No moth can eat away such treasures. Nature and the elements cannot wear down, cannot wear away the fruit of the Spirit. No rust, no vermin can destroy such investments. There is no economic downturn in heaven. What is made for eternity lasts eternally. Deposits of grace have unlimited and inexhaustible potential. Earthly deposits have limits. They can be exhausted, but deposits of grace are inexhaustible and unlimited in their potential. And thieves are not a concern when it comes to the riches of the kingdom. There's no need to break in and steal what God offers freely. Any robber who tries to dig their way into heaven is going to be welcomed with open arms, not because of their effort, but because Jesus came for just such persons. Do you remember who was on the cross next to Jesus? Do you remember who was pressing into heaven? A thief. And that thief, in the midst of trying to press into heaven, Jesus didn't say, hey, 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 you're not stealing this. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You're knocking on the right door. You're trying to break into the right place. Jesus reiterates in this first layer that what influences or impedes our generosity is what we treasure. What we love, what we desire affects how, where, and in whom we invest. And this then brings us into the next layer of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus, if you will, conducts an eye test. Does our vision line up with his? Are we seeing the potential we have been given or are we blinded by our desire for what we don't have? And if you want to check where your focus is, if you want to check what direction you're pointing, Jesus says, get your eyes checked. Check your vision. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, what sounds to us odd and strange was a very familiar figure of speech in Jesus' culture. In many, many Jewish writings, the eye was considered, was referenced as the source of light for the body. So his hearers would have got this. The idea was a healthy eye represented generosity. If you were a giving person, your generosity of heart was reflected by the light of God's grace coming through you, the, 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 the image of God being reflected through you. Whereas a sick eye represented greed or covetousness. If one refused to be generous, if treasuring your possessions overshadowed your willingness to give, the blackness of your own greed left you in the dark, perpetually disoriented and increasingly frustrated. This is the visual that Jesus is trying to give us at this layer, to understand this tension. And there's a telling story that might be of assistance to us. There's a telling story about Alfred Noble. Alfred Noble was the inventor of dynamite. And one morning, Alfred was reading the newspaper only to be shocked to find his obituary inside. You see, his brother had died and the newspaper accidentally published the obituary for Alfred instead. And this is what the obituary read. The merchant of death is dead. Alfred Noble, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Alfred Noble was understandably shocked and struck by the way the world was going to remember him after his death. 
In fact, this shocks and Alfred on a quest to change how he would be remembered. And he, he set aside the bulk of his estate to establish the Nobel Foundation, which now, still to this day, recognizes cultural and scientific advances for the betterment of our world. Most people don't even know that the founder of the Nobel Prize is the same Alfred Nobel who invented dynamite. You see, Alfred checked his vision. Alfred actually looked at where his focus was directed, and all he could see was darkness. Alfred's perspective had to be changed before he could see the light. My friends, we too are bombarded by sometimes loud and sometimes seductive voices. We're indoctrinated by the repetition of images and icons. We are encouraged and titillated to pursue greed, fame, and possessions as the ultimate ideals, as the necessary gateways to having it all. But what Jesus is telling us is this prosperity gospel is a false one. It is a distorted one. If you have grace, you have it all. What else are you trying to have? Seeking after the treasures of this world will leave us empty, Jesus says, even as we are full. For all the stuff we fill our lives with, we will still find ourselves sitting hungry in the midst of excess, thirsting even as our lives are overflowing with riches. Looking with envy at what we don't have or becoming myopic with greed, convinced we need more than we already possess, will blind us even though we can see. Beloved, Jesus is saying to us that either the light of God's grace shines through us or the darkness of our sin consumes us. Please hear that. Either the light of God's grace shines through us or the darkness of our sin consumes us. But if that analogy is too vague or still confusing for us, Jesus peels away here the final layer of his teaching and makes it this plain. And you've heard this verse before. When Jesus just comes out and says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God. And money. Now, if you have that Bible open, I want you to see this because this is important as we, we get into this final layer of what Jesus gives us. Jesus isn't giving us advice here. Jesus isn't giving us advice. He isn't telling us to get our priorities in order. Jesus doesn't say, you should not serve both God and money. Jesus isn't even offering us a better option. Jesus doesn't say, you must not serve God and money. For Jesus, I want you to see this, there is no choice. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of being impossible. Jesus says, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. Why is Jesus so emphatic here? Why does he land so strongly? And I think our ability to to understand why we have to wrestle a little bit more with our English translation because frankly, a scripture we know very, very well, the English translation, in my opinion, doesn't do justice to what Jesus is trying to communicate. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. The first thing I want you to understand is the word serve that we have here in English actually better translates as being a slave to. 
You cannot be a slave to both God and money. You cannot be a slave to two masters. And this idea of being a slave to refers to whether it's literal, figuratively, voluntarily, or involuntarily. And this is so significant because when Jesus says you cannot, we translate it as you cannot serve two masters, we might think, I mean, I do. I go, well, I can work for two employers. I can work for two employers. I can make that work, so why can't I make this work? We can visualize that, so why can't I serve both God and money? But if it's, you cannot be a slave to both God and money, it changes things, right? Because being a slave means you're the sole property of one master. Slavery implies exclusivity. A sole owner who demands exclusive service. There's one other word in here that needs a little bit of massaging, and that's the word money. You cannot serve both God and money. That English translation of money, which is why it gets brought up every time in stewardship, tithing, it's about money, but it, the wor actual word is much, much deeper than that. The word money that we translate here is actually the word mammon. Maybe you've heard that word before, mammon. M-A-M-M-O-N, mammon. Mammon has so much more depth than just money. The word mammon literally refers to riches or possessions. It has this connotation of anything that has our allegiance and loyalty. And so what Jesus is saying in a phrase we know very, very well is much bigger than just about money. What Jesus is saying is you can't be working for the Lord and moonlighting for worldly success. You can't be working for the Lord and moonlighting for worldly success because that's, you're trying to work two different competing agendas at the same time. One will always dominate the other. Both cannot work together. The two masters, God and mammon, require two very different things. Think about it. The one calls us to live by faith, looking towards eternity. The other calls us to live for today, ignoring the consequences and even the possibilities of tomorrow. One calls us to live in dependence as a part of something greater than ourselves. The other calls us to look out for number one, even if our prosperity comes at the expense of others. One calls us to be generous, to give away all that we have, trusting we will always receive what we need. The other calls us to hoard, to hold on to whatever we have, always anticipating scarcity and loss to be on the horizon. One calls us to find our identity in Christ, to know that we are enough, that we are enough, that we were worth dying for, the other calls us to find our identity in what we can earn, in what we can produce. And no matter how much we have, it is never enough. No matter how much we amass, it all gets left behind for others to fight and argue over. Again, I'm, I'm hitting that point I said earlier. I'm coming at it another way because I need you to hear this. Jesus is not telling us to not have or even accumulate resources. Jesus is not telling us, don't have wealth, don't have means, don't have material goods, don't have skill, don't develop skills, don't have relationships. Jesus is not saying that. Beloved, as stewards of creation, we are called and empowered to have and work a solid plan in terms of the earthly resources God has entrusted to us. Do you remember the story of Joseph? The story of Joseph is Joseph is lifted up for his ability to use the resources at his disposal for the salvation of, of not just Egypt, but the surrounding nations to the glory of God. 
What Jesus is trying to stress, and this is again the key, is not to forget, not to lose focus, and instead to realize whatever resources we acquire have been given to us not for our own personal agendas, but for a much larger divine kingdom purpose. Money, wealth, possessions, masteries of skills, controlling relationships are never to be our goal. Do you hear me this morning, church? Because whether we're inside the church or outside the church, we still live in a world where if we're really honest, money, wealth, possessions, mastery of skills, and controlling relationships are our goals. They're our goals. They're the goals we teach our children to strive for. They're the goals by which we measure our life. And Jesus is saying, no, whatever resources we have been given, whatever resources we have been given are a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Our resources, in fact, if you will, are a means of grace. Whatever you have, materially or relationally, is a means of grace. Your means, God-given means of sharing the treasure of the gospel, the kingdom with others. You see, Jesus is forcing us to confront the truth that whether we define it another way, the truth is devotion is exclusive. Jesus isn't challenging us here to give a little bit more of our money. Jesus isn't challenging us to give a little bit more of our time. Jesus isn't challenging us to give a little bit more of our attention. I mean, that's how we often read this, is just give a little bit more. No. I mean, when people get married, right? I mean, and some of you are married. No people who are married. When people get married, they don't vow to love each other, to be faithful, to be devoted to each other 75% of the time. I want you to imagine that service, that wedding service. I'm officiating. You come in, the couple gets up here, they say their vows, and they go, will you love, honor, and obey me for the rest of your life? And the person stops and goes, well, what kind of percentage are we talking here? Are we talking like 50% of the time? Because I could do 70, I don't know. And we're negotiating up here the percentages. You'd be out there going, oh my gosh. Right? No one would go, oh, well, that's, I'm doing that at my wedding. That's what I'm going to do. We're going to no, we understand innately that when people are standing up here making vows to each other, they're making an exclusive commitment to each other in the marriage covenant. And it's not by accident that one of the primary ways that God frames his relationship with us is in the marital covenant. In the same way, we enter into an exclusive relationship with God through the covenant in Jesus' blood. Beloved, grace is free, but it ain't cheap. Grace is free, but it ain't cheap. We cheapen grace when we devalue it, when we elevate anything else above it. Through Moses, the Lord once told the people, it was one of his top 10, it was the start, in fact, you shall have no other gods before me, remember? Hear Moses way back when, and I've told you this is the background to under hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Hear Moses echoing through Jesus as he lays the same foundational principle when he tells us, store up treasures in heaven. Set your eyes single-mindedly on God and serve God alone. Jesus, and if this sounds harsh, and I know for many of us it stings, don't hear it that way. Don't hear this sermon that way. Because in fact, rather than hear it harshly, understand what Jesus is doing here is he's simply calling us to the life that God intended all along. He's inviting us to the very life that we want. 
The life, in fact, that God has given us anew through the grace of the cross and the resurrection. This isn't a slap. This is a shake. Come to your senses. Look at what you're doing. I'm inviting you in, elder son. Your, all, your younger son was dead, but you're still complaining. Come in. Devotion is exclusive. That's a thing. Jesus cautions us in telling us this. Be careful because whatever we seek to possess always ends up possessing us. And, and here's the thing, another way to hit this. Whatever we seek to possess always ends up possessing us. And that's bad with everything but God. The only thing that's good to possess us is God. If God possesses us, that's the only good thing that could possibly happen. But if anything else, name it, possesses you, it's not good for you. And it's not good for whoever it is that is possessing you or whatever it is. It's destructive. It breaks us down. It kills us. So the question becomes, as we hear Jesus is, what or who possesses us? Have we been possessed by all the stuff, all the relationships that, we, that are in our lives? We're really good at prizing things, right? We're really good at building shelves and putting them up there with lights to say, hey, look at this. And it's not just stuff, it's people. Putting people on a pedestal. Is that what we're being consumed by, possessed by? And we're very good at consuming stuff. Man, we're possessed by all the stuff we take in. Or are we, have we been possessed by the inexhaustible riches of the grace of God? Have you been possessed by the person of Jesus Christ? You know, every sermon I point to this, but if this isn't a time for a Kairos moment, I don't know what is. This card, what is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? Beloved, with me in these closing moments, let us dare to confront what we treasure. You may never have even thought about it in your life. Let us, as Jesus tells us, check our heart, check our vision, check our devotion. Ask yourself this morning with this card in front of you, ask yourself, what is it that I treasure so highly that I am irritated when other people don't? To put it another way, what are things that I respect so deeply that I tend to be resentful of those who treat them with disrespect? What do you worry about so much you are holding on to it tightly because you are afraid of losing it? What is the standard by which you measure others? And that may seem like a question out of left field, but if you stop and think about it, what is the standard by which you measure others reveals a lot about what you prize and value. Hear this. If I were to summarize what Jesus says here in a single sentence, it's this. If anything in this world is everything to you, it is a false treasure. It is a corrupted resource. Or more traditionally, as the Bible calls it, it is an idol. It is an idol. We live in a time where atheism is on the rise, where people want to get fired up about the fact that there are people who don't believe in God. If I may be so bold, Jesus here is encouraging us to be atheists of the God of this, gods of this world. Be atheists of the gods of this world. Check your heart, check your vision, check your devotion. And I know when you hear that, you're like me, you're gonna focus on, oh, I gotta do better, I gotta get my heart right, I gotta get my vision right, I gotta get my devotion right. And remember, I've told you the foundational premise of this entire sermon is grace. When I tell you to check your heart, when I tell you to check your vision, to check your devotion, 
I'm not telling you to go to work. What I'm telling you is to let Jesus go to work. What I'm telling you to do when I say check your heart, check your vision, check your devotion, is exchange all three of those with Jesus. Your heart, your vision, your devotion for his. Receive Jesus' heart for you. God treasures you. Do you get that? That's why this is such a big deal. You treasuring something else. God treasures you. You are precious in his sight. Receive Jesus' heart for you. See yourself, your identity, your value, the way Jesus sees you. Once again, you are enough. Right here, right now, you are enough. You were worth dying for. Receive Jesus' heart for you. See yourself as Jesus sees you and realize how devoted God is to you. In and through Jesus Christ, God intentionally gave to you and to me. It wasn't random. It wasn't trivial. It's not even static. God gives to us purposefully. He gave his one and only son to save us, to transform us, to save others through us. Jesus came to save you. Think about it. He saved you by serving you. And now Jesus looks to save others through your service to him. The Lord gives to us so as to give through us. It's been said, there's this saying, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. Beloved, instead of trying to save our lives, if we give them away in devotion to God, we will experience the good news of the inexhaustible power and geometric potential of grace. Have you even experienced that? However long you've been on this planet, the inexhaustible power, the geometrical potential of grace, do you know what I'm talking about? Instead of being driven by fear, if we will be guided by the spirit of generosity, instead of wanting more, even as we worry about what we might lose, we can discover how much we already have as well as how much we can gain by being a blessing to someone else. There's two examples as I was preparing for the sermon that just struck me in Scripture, two contrasts that, that come right out of this teaching. You'll remember both of these stories. It's two stories. One is the story of a rich young ruler. The other is the story of a very rich, wealthy chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. Do you remember these two stories? One tried to buy his way into the kingdom, the rich young ruler. Hey, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? What's the price? Tell me what I got to do. How do I buy that? How do I get that? And Jesus said, well, there's these commands. Oh, I've got that all handled. That's in my portfolio. Done. Done. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. Give away all that you have. And you know the end of that story. He walks away. The man who tried to buy his way into the kingdom walks away unwilling to let go of what he treasured. But then there's Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Short guy, couldn't see, climbed up a tree so he could see Jesus. And then Jesus comes to him and as he comes down and he has had this transformative encounter, he knows what people are saying because they're not being shy about saying it. And Zacchaeus in that moment says something bold. He says, I'm gonna give away half of what I have to those who need it and I'm gonna go further than that. I'm gonna use the rest to make amends with those I have wronged. Do you remember these two stories? The one rich young ruler as he walks away, the scriptures tell us Jesus looked at him and loved him, but turned to his disciples and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Zacchaeus 
makes this statement and Jesus says, hey, whoa, stop, everybody, stop. Freeze where you are. Salvation has come into this house. Don't look any further. This is the kingdom of heaven, right here. And then for me, not in the Bible, there's the, the, the elderly Czech widow who lives at the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. Her name's Lumilla. Lumilla is an 82-year-old widow from the Czech Republic, one of the most atheistic places in Europe. A survivor of both the Nazi and communist occupations, Lumilda treasures her faith and her relationship with Jesus. But one day she came to this realization, this treasure, this relationship, this grace was hers to share with others. Suddenly she heard Jesus' declaration, my kingdom is not of this world in a new way. She didn't have much. But what she had, she offered to others in the name of Jesus. You see, Lumilda had this brass sign made, like the one she saw on many embassies in the city. And on that brass sign, she had engraved the words, Embassy of the Kingdom of Heaven. And with prayer, she hung that sign, this is a true story, beside the front door of her home. And then when you know it, people began to show up. People who were afraid people with questions, people just looking for someone to listen. Lumilda welcomed each and every person. She invited them to sit at her simple table, arranged with cookies and tea, but spread out with abundant love. Out of her generous hospitality, Lumilda shared the gift of her presence. She ministered by offering her heart, giving attention and listening to those in trouble or in need. And Lumilda prays. She doesn't just pray in advance of each guest's arrival or after they leave. She prays right there on the spot with each person. She prays, and as the Holy Spirit leads in each encounter, Lumilda advises. She encourages. She affirms the love and grace of the God who in Jesus Christ transforms our lives. Lumilda, in fact, drops everything whenever someone knocks on her door. And I love, this is my favorite part of her story, because she actually confesses she is the most excited about the guests who don't call ahead. She is most excited about the guests who don't call ahead because she hasn't prepared for them. And that way, everything she has to offer is from the Lord. These are her words. She says, we often don't realize that all believers are called to be representatives of the kingdom of heaven. We are all ambassadors. The Lord Jesus didn't choose to do it any other way. He simply entrusted us. My friends, eventually, one way or another, all of us, me, you, we will give away what we have, all of our earthly resources. The question is how we choose to give away what we have. Are you going to wait until death pries it from your hands and start back at zero? Or are you going to let Jesus open your hands and teach you how to invest in the kingdom that you're going to be living in for eternity? Lumilda's story, and this is why I love it, I love it. Lumilda's story reminds us what matters is not the size or range of the resources we have to give. What matters is the size and range of our devotion to the Lord and his kingdom. Can you imagine with me just this last part, can you imagine this with me? Will you even allow this to enter into our hard-hearted, cynical minds? What would happen if each of us put a sign outside the front of our homes, on the dashboard of our cars, 
at, on the desk at our workplace that read Embassy of the Kingdom of Heaven. Just for a second, can you just entertain this? How would committing to that kind of declaration of whom we serve, of what we treasure the most, how would that change the focus of all of our efforts and our goals? How would that simple yet bold act transform how we view our resources, all the stuff, all the time, all the space, all the relationships we've been given out of the grace of God? What kind of investments might we suddenly find ourselves invited to make, reaping dividends that not only save and equip the lives of others, but also deepen our own experience of the wealth of the love, compassion, and joy of knowing and following Jesus Christ? It's crazy, right? So silly. But what if it isn't? What if it isn't? What if it's that simple to begin? My friends, reflecting and imitating the love and grace of God provides far more security and so much more fulfillment than any material or relational possession we have. I can say it. Jesus can say it more importantly. But we're not going to know it until we let Jesus teach us, until we allow ourselves to experience it. So my word, my word that's Jesus' word to me, and therefore my word to you is, let's keep learning from Jesus how to be intentional. Let's, like Jesus, continue to be empowered by the grace of God, and out of that grace of God, choose each and every day to give willingly. Let's continue to live generously, investing in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.